to Safe Radio, offering hope, health, and healing in these challenging times, reminding people you are not alone. The Safe Coalition is an organization devoted to supporting individuals and their families as they deal with substance use disorder and all of the consequences associated with this disease. I am Ann Bergen. The co-host of this radio program podcast is Jim Derrick, one of the founders of the Safe Coalition. He and others in the coalition are determined to keep attention focused on how this epidemic continues to take its toll, made even worse by the COVID pandemic. This organization is an example of the power of community when individuals see a need and come together to address it. These people refuse to let one more day go by helplessly watching as more and more of our young people succumb to the ravages of this disease and how their families were suffering and so in need of support. As an educator in the town of Franklin, I saw too many of my former students suffering and too many young lives of promise being snuffed out. Our guests today are yet another example of what can happen when a community comes together to provide support and compassion in our time of greatest need. We are so proud of them and must never lose sight of how fortunate the community is to have such dedicated helpers. We are so grateful. Jim, will you have the honor of introducing them for us today? I sure will. Thank you again, Ian. I am pleased to introduce to you Detective Mike Kalecki. Mike, thanks for being here. No problem. And Callie Montagano. Welcome, Callie. Thank you. And both are coming to us from the Franklin Police Headquarters. Greatly appreciate you being here today and taking time out of what I know is a really busy schedule. The Franklin Police Department has been an incredibly important factor in the change, the way that we as a community deal with both mental health and substance use disorder. Both Michael and Callie work on the front lines on a daily basis, working certainly, I know, on curbing the problem from a legal perspective, putting people behind bars that belong behind bars. But importantly, for this conversation, we're focused on their efforts relative to helping people find treatment and ushering them hopefully into a life of recovery. And it's been an enormous change in policing over just the past decade. As Ann said before, we are so grateful for your service and for that of your colleagues at the police department under the direction of TJ Lynch. Michael, I wanted to start with you. You are a detective? Correct. How long have you been with Franklin? Uh, coming up on two years. It's been a okay. quick two years. Well, what is your background, Michael? So uh, I'm an Air Force vet. Previous to that, I was uh, I went to college down in, in the Carolinas and um, grew up in kind of central Mass, primarily in the Worcester County. Went to high school in Worcester and did a lot of my upbringing in Worcester. So thank you for your service, by the way, in the Air Force. Appreciate that. Thanks. And what drew you to policing? Uh, I had some. I have an uncle and a cousin that worked for Worcester PD. So going over there as a young kid, see my uncle all you know, dressed up in the uniform and, and the big gun belt on the cruiser in the, in the driveway always kind of stuck out to me. And uh, yeah, that, and then just um, trying to work in a place where you could look back and be like, you know what, I, I, I helped build that or um, I helped do something in that community as opposed to just sitting in a cube and hitting numbers all day. So right. I see it directly. 
with the people that we work with. And I will share stories as we go along about that impact. But you're you're absolutely right. The impact that you have is tangible and you can see it right in front of you evolving every day. And I know your job's not without frustration, <laughs> but uh, it's important that we mark the moments of success. And there are a lot of them, Michael. And um, recently, Michael uh, joined our board of directors at the Safe Coalition, and we're very, very grateful to have you on board. Yeah. Mike, you're a, you're a narcotics detective. Correct. So what is your daily job like? I mean, what, what are you focused on? It's kind of all over the place. Um, for instance, this morning I had a, I had a voicemail from a, uh, a girl who Callie and I know very well in town. We try to give her services, help her out, uh, issues with substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it starts off with that. And then, when, you know, at work, it could be, uh, you know, trying to meet up with those people to see what they, what they need, if, uh, what's going on and what direction we can kind of help steer them. And then other times it's a lot of surveillance trying to find, you know, where, where are people meeting up and and conducting these deals at? Sometimes we get Intel on that from, from the community. Other times it's just a shot in the dark, just really just following up with people, seeing how, how things are going with them. And that would probably be about it. And and backfilling patrol too. Um, I find it so interesting in that the very first thing, when I asked Michael uh, what his daily job was like, first thing that came out of your mouth was to find out what Mm -hmm. the needs are of people in the community that you're working with and respond to those needs. And that's a really interesting thing to come up first, because that tells me where your mind is at. And that's exactly what I found has changed so dramatically over the past five to 10 years. Police departments are being asked to be social service agents, along with police detectives and patrol officers. Yeah. I think a, a big thing with me too is we had a, this was a two man position doing narcotics, and now it's only down to one. So mm-hmm. I found early on, with you know just trying to either sit in parking lots or watch an address, there's 24 hours in a day, you know, and I can't be at sitting at a place for 24 of those hours. So it's the window of opportunity is very narrow. Yeah. So after a couple of months of realizing, um, you know. I'm, I'm outgunned, I'm outnumbered. It's when we went back to the community approach, talking with either old substance users, new ones, and even just the public saying, hey, like, do you have any issues? Where are they? What do you think? Do you have issues with your own family? Can we help out? And it kind of, think of it as like branches to a tree. What do you see in your day-to-day work, Michael, right now is the current trends with substance use um, and uh, substance use disorder. Do you, is it is it a problem that's getting worse? Is it frustrating? What, what's going on right now on the street? Uh, I would say it's it's certainly it's if not getting worse, it's staying the same. Um, the with the pandemic and the COVID relief money on top of the social or social security money or um, unemployment money that that people get, they're not working. They're at home. Mm-hmm. We all know boredom leads to. Um, some bad decisions, especially if, you know, their spouse or family are still going to work. So now they're home all alone. Um, but the, as far as trends go, I would say we have a, we're, we're getting into a, a generation of users that are in their sixties mm-hmm. and they're doing hand to hand deals on the street. And it kind of blew my mind the first time. Cause you think of drugs and, you know, hard drugs, you think of younger, you know, late teens, thirties, maybe the 40 year olds, but then by 50, 60, certainly it should be done. But wow. So yeah. you're talking about hard drugs like cocaine, heroin, uh, crack cocaine. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. you know, heroin, um, and fentanyl, 
we had a uh, we had an overdose with a involving a 57 year old and a 28 year old. And they were they were in the same truck, and it's like what? what this doesn't make sense. Mike, can you just tell us a little bit when you're talking about ages? What about like sort of uh, the younger group? What uh, from a school perspective, are you seeing it with younger kids, with high school kids, or um, is are there growing trends there at all? Yeah, I would say um, we don't work very close with the school on the substance abuse issues, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I know firsthand from some kids that the vaping. The vaping has led to a unique situation where you get some kids that they order these vapes on Snapchat. And then during the deal, they'll try to rob the other kid that they're getting the vapes off of. And we've had kids um, stabbed from that. We've had a kid um, hold up other kids uh, with a BB gun and then get into a fight with the law enforcement when they've been arrested for it. So it's some unique challenges. And then the uh, we had some instances recently where uh, some Xanax pills have been going around and, and students will tell you like, yeah, I went to this Snapchat name, hit them up, and they put me in touch with a different person and then set up the deal that way. And you look into the other, that middleman, and they all went to the schools. So wow. even though they graduated, they still have their tentacles to current classes. Yeah. So oh, you just mentioned the Xanax in the context with, with high school age students. Yeah. You're seeing, you're seeing a lot of pill use with high school age students. Yeah. So I would say um, the Xanaxes are big. Only it, it seems like uh, it seems like not only kids, but everybody gets prescribed these antidepressants, um, whether it's, you know, Xanaxes or the hundred dollar brand names they have out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what has led them to want to abuse those Zanny bars. They call them. You're right. Right. I don't know what the, I don't know what the draw is to it. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned another thing that's frightening and that's the pressed pills. These are, uh, I believe they just had a big arrest done in Quincy where they broke up uh, a pill mill, if you will, a pressing uh, that was being run out of a storage facility. And those pills are being manufactured by illegally and can be pressed with almost anything in, in them, right? Including fentanyl. Which Correct. Is it's very easy to press pills. You, you need really two components. You need to press them in the dye to make whatever pill you're trying to duplicate. The sky's the limit as far as filler goes with these. We arrested a guy in May and he, he had 933 blue pills that look like Percocets. And we sent them to the lab, we got them back and they were all fentanyl. Oh. Mm. So it's extremely cheap. Extremely cheap. It's it's chemically made. They, you can get a lot of the chemicals from China. Right. There's uh, very little regulations on them. Right. So we're seeing that. We don't really find that people, when they buy heroin, are buying heroin. It's it's a it's almost a known standard right. that they're going to get fentanyl. And for people listening, uh, I believe fentanyl is a hundred times. Check me on this. A hundred times more potent than heroin. Is that correct? I believe it's, I believe they say it's 10. It's I'm the sorry. car fentanyl. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So which we've had car fentanyl in Franklin. We had, uh, we busted a kid with 200, uh, 200 grams of car fentanyl. It was the, right. it was the largest, it was the largest car fentanyl concentrated bust in the state. So car fentanyl is something at a hundred times more potent than heroin. You can Correct. literally get a contact overdose from something like that. Uh, Two or meaning, three like little salt grains from it. Right, right. Where fentanyl uh, being 10 times more potent than heroin is what's causing the bulk of the overdoses. Would that be accurate? Correct. Yeah. Um, how many 
overdose fatalities have there been in Franklin to date? Do you know off the top of your head? So year to date, um, we had two, but we had another resident who suffered a fatal overdose, but it was on, um, it was in Westboro on route nine. So. But the trend is pretty much, uh, it's not necessarily getting better. You, you were responding also to a lot of reversed overdoses, right? Or oh, overdoses are reversed as you get out uh, on scene uh, with Narcan. Correct. Um, so. And those are the ones we get called on. We see about 40 to 45 overdoses a year. As far as the overdoses themselves that get reversed, I would have to say, you know, there's probably four or five more that occur. That's a frightening thing because Narcan is only an antagonist to right. opioids. So it separates the uh, opioid from the opioid receptor, but then uh, can recirculate and, and reattach to that receptor. So without medical treatment, that person's in jeopardy of, for lack of a better word, re-overdosing or succumbing to that original overdose because they reattach. So uh, that's a very, very frightening thing. And that kind of goes to the current trends. We've got a lot of pills in the street. I know you you probably see, a, you've just mentioned vague and I'm sure THC, illegal cartridges and things like that. Um, I'm very interested in your approach to policing. And I want to bring in Callie on this conversation. Callie is a master, <laughs> master's level clinician who was brought on to work both with Franklin and Medway collaboratively through a grant. And the impact that you've had, Callie, has been amazing. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it is that you do in your role? So my technical title is Jail Diversion Clinician. Um, the program was started about 18 years ago in Framingham with the Framingham Police Department um, to embed a clinician directly within the police department to co-respond to calls for mental health, substance use crisis um, in an effort to divert people from going to jail that maybe needed mental health services were putting the, someone that has mental health issues into the criminal justice system isn't going to get them the treatment that they need. Um, another part that's kind of unfolded since the program is diverting people from unnecessary hospitalization. Um, so sending someone to the hospital with an ambulance trip, ER bills is costly to that person. Um, and they might not necessarily need it. Um, it's kind of a band-aid, whereas the ultimate goal is basically to keep someone in the community, get them the resources they need in the community, if that's possible. Of course, it's it's not always ideal um, in some situations, but sometimes people do need to get that hospitalization. Um, and sometimes it's not always possible to divert arrest. Jim, can I just follow up on, just on a quick question? Because yeah. just sort of following up on what Mike had said also about Xanax and depression and, um, I mean, being treated for depression. How big is this, the issue around mental health out there in the, the community? And because we, we think that, that, um, that it's, just, you know, substance use disorder is just sort of this separate thing, but they're so connected, aren't they, in terms of this epidemic around mental health issues that we see in the schools starting at, at, at younger and younger ages. Just Cal, from your perspective, Kelly, how big is it an issue out there in terms of that relationship between mental health and substance use? It's huge. I, I would say most of the time people that are using substances, they're using them for a reason, whether it's to self-medicate other issues, depression, anxiety, um, to deal with what's going on. We've definitely seen an uptick with COVID, people being home, um, not having access to treatment. There has been, I would say, more access in some ways just because of the telehealth options. A lot of providers are working from home, so they have more availability. But at the same time, 
everyone's going through COVID. So everyone's struggling and everyone's looking for that extra support. So wait lists are much, much longer, unfortunately. I think the question that Ann just asked is so important and it's so important to expose because you're right in most people have seen those even clinically. They saw that for many years, there was something called dual diagnosis treatment, which was like a subset and a specialty. So you could go in for both mental health and substance use disorder treatment. And over time, people realized clinically that they're actually one and the same. And in fact, the National Institute of Health reclassified substance use disorder a couple of years ago as a mental illness. I think your question's spot on, and it also gets to some of the stigma around mm. mental health. I hear a lot of people that are struggling with a loved one's substance use disorder saying, well, my son or daughter, they're an addict, but we don't think there's anything, you know, they don't have, they've shown signs of delusions and signs of paranoia, but that's their drugs. I want to make sure you know it's not a mental health issue because we're all afraid. We're afraid of that type of a diagnosis. And so um, I think it's a really important question. I think Callie's presence in her role with the Franklin Police Department is a sign of changing times. I mean, I it was only six short years ago that the coalition formed. I remember Chief Sumergin sitting on the stage prior to TJ, and it was an entirely different conversation in all police departments, not just here in Franklin. Frankly, there was a reluctance, not just by the police department, but by local political leaders to keep the drug problem a little bit quiet because you want to have a community that was safe. And would you agree with that? I see Callie nodding. Yes, um, I always I mean, people ask us, you know, Mike and I all the time, like how prevalent it is it in Franklin Medway? It doesn't happen here, but we all know mental health does not discriminate. So, right. I don't care whether you're in Needham, Dover, Franklin, there's a drug problem. And what I love about TJ's leadership is that he has named it for what it is. We're no different than any other community. Uh, actually started publishing overdose uh, records online for the public to see, speaks about it out loud, trains up officers and staff and empowers them. And lo and behold, by actually speaking about it, recognizing it, what it is for what it is, we have a solution like Cali brought on board where we're more effectively dealing with our community and the members that are affected and getting them into treatment as opposed to just into a, an institution. Isn't that a better answer and a better solution? What about alcohol? It seems to me now when you look at the, the, the deaths of despair, you know, suicide, drug overdose and diseases related to alcohol. How big an issue now, particularly during the pandemic, are you seeing the complications from alcoholism out there? I would say the the alcoholism part of uh, the issues is extremely under recognized by the public. A lot of our calls, whether it's domestic violence related, I, I would say around 70% of those involve alcohol yeah. more than anything. You know, alcohol is kind of seen as this common normalized drug or not even a drug. It's just considered just alcohol. And I don't think communities really understand the effect it has on people in relationships. I mean, we see it firsthand every, every um, probably, I would say every shift, you know, we're dealing with somebody that is either drunk, was drunk or did something while they were drunk. Yeah. Uh, more so than we're seeing the drug aspect of it, of sure. you know, the hard stuff. So how big, how much supports out there in terms of support, like easy access to, to AA so that people can get support and kids like Alateen and that they need support because they're coming to school and they're, and they're surrounded by this at home and they have to deal with it. 
we don't know what's going on sometimes in homes, how to help, help the kids in school. Um, do you think there are enough supports and services? I know the Safe Coalition does a huge amount, but I'm wondering if we need more out there just from your guys' perspective. I don't know what you guys think about it. I always think there's a need. Um, yeah. I Absolutely. The kind of nice thing that came um, with COVID, as I mentioned, with access to more services, is a lot of the meetings are online now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, throughout the country. So 24 hours a day, you can jump on any meeting at any place and meet with different people. And they have in-person meetings too. So I think in terms of like AA and NA, there's definitely access. Um I, I think real quick, um, so a lot of these guys and girls that we deal with um, that are really struggling with the with the, the alcoholism and the substance abuse, um, they, we're sitting down right here, everyone's at home or at work, and we have access to the internet, uh, or we can go on our phone and go on it. Some of these guys don't have that uh, luxury at home. So we say, yeah, go online and, you know, go on Zoom on your phone and um, go into a point. meeting. And it's, I don't have Wi-Fi at my house. I don't even, you know, I don't have, I have to be on uh, the internet to use my data to make a phone call. We're so. working with the uh, Turning Point Recovery Center now on a wall pole and the recovery center model is to be open and accessible to people that are in recovery or contemplating recovery yeah. to do exactly what you say. It, it's to break down that, that barrier. Um, although I was talking with the director yesterday, I said, gee, you know, what's the barrier is transportation. Because not only do you not have Wi-Fi, but if you don't have Wi-Fi, you probably don't have access to a vehicle. And one of the things that we're doing is going to contract with a cab company to get those people that are pursuing or contemplating recovery, get them transportation to a place like Turning Point where they can start spend the day there in a resource center and start looking for recovery options, meetings, uh, jobs. Uh, other people in long-term recovery to to um, socialize with. So it's it's really your your point is very well taken. And um, it really takes a whole community, and it's a lifelong struggle. Uh, these are this is an illness that you can relapse from at any time. So it's you're you're always once you're in recovery, you're always in recovery or pursuing recovery, and it's not a straight line. So you need support all the time. One of the things that I wanted to highlight are a couple of examples of what happens when you have people like Mike and Callie. I recently came into contact with a family who called us and in my conversation with them found out that this person had, had reentered the recovery process as a direct result of his contact with Mike and the Franklin police department, Mm -hmm. rather than being arrested and warehoused or sent through the process alone, Mike had actually accompanied this family to the rental court and shepherded them through the process that they were going through, encouraged the young man all along the way, off to treatment he went, and is now back living in the community in long-term recovery. And his loved one said to me, thanks to Mike Kalecki, uh, this is all happening. And it really, really stops me in my tracks when I hear that. Not just because I like Mike, which I do, but because (laughs) it just is a beacon of hope when you have a police department that is empowered to come alongside of families as opposed to just sitting across the table and looking like adversaries. They come along the side and they say, look, we'll advocate for you. We're going to help you through this process. Yes, there may be some consequences for your actions and you may have to pay penalties for those. We're not going to ignore that, but we are going to be your ally in helping you get into recovery. Similarly, part of Callie's job is to go out on calls with police. She meets with a family 
uh, which he did in this case, that family member sat and listened to Callie say, look, we have resources for you if, if you need them and we're here to help. And that was the trigger in this person's mind that they really had a problem. In their words to me was, was if the Franklin Police Department thought it was important enough to follow with, up with me and they see the problem and they're willing to provide a solution, then maybe I need to listen and go. And they're in treatment today as a result of that visit. So, I mean, those are two examples of the ripple effect that this type of policing creates in a community. And sometimes you guys hear about it, and I'll bet a lot of times you don't. And you never know when that fruit is going to be born. You know, uh, it's those types of contacts that stick with people and have long lasting impacts, which leads me to my question. I know that uh, you are all empowered. I keep saying empowered to do your jobs this way. What role has leadership at Franklin Police Department played in changing the way or continuing the way you you uh, pursue your jobs as allies as opposed to just adversaries? I think the whole mentality in recent years with policing, it's uh, it's been the, you know, we're not going into incidents now with boxing gloves on and, you know, looking to roll around and, and lock someone up. I think, I think it's been a, I'd say within the last decade, kind of a, a ripple effect of, Hey, listen, like, yeah, these people are, you know, they're doing, you know, not good things, but they're not career criminals. Um, let's try to, if we can get to the root of the problem now and have it dealt with, maybe in five years, we're not dealing with this person where, you know, decades back, it was, they call them frequent flyers because you're dealing with the same person over and over for decades. And then you're dealing with their kids. Um, so I think seeing that and having, you know, our, our leaders, you know, being on the job for a while and understanding that we're able to kind of say, you know what, yeah, let's, let's try something different. Cause what we did before didn't really work that well. Um, and with Callie and I, they, they ensure that we have the, this training coming up that we have the ability to go to it. I think what you point to, Mike, is really important. There's a culture around this that supports the type of policing you're doing, clearly, or you wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And the culture is, hey, if you're from a human perspective, we want to help people, certainly. But even from a strict economic sense, you know, it yeah. just makes sense to help people usher people out of the system so that the community and our tax dollars aren't continuing to pay for the recidivism that is inherent with this illness. It, but that's where uh, I want to jump in, Jim, because one of the things I think is following up on exactly what Mike said is, you know, what is it? Pay me now or pay me later. But that's why we have to go to the schools early intervention because mental health issues start to surface at a surface at young ages. By the time kids are 14, many of them are full blown and they're not even identified till years later. It speaks to where we need to put our resources and again, work together as a community. You know, I think that that's so crucial that, 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 that whole idea of prevention and education is built in there. But one of the things I wanted to follow up on is just when I'm looking at the two of you and I think, so often when you go into situations like this, I think we have to keep reminding the community when something is fueled by particularly alcohol and there's domestic violence going on, you're going into these situations. And it can't always be easy in terms of having to diffuse and use all the skills and talents that you have to, to calm a situation down because you walk into these all the time. I mean, isn't that a big part of what you have to do and what your training is all about? Yeah, uh, I think what helps... Callie and I out um, is, you know, initially when that call comes in, 
there's marked units there, lights and sirens. Um, they get the radios blaring while they're you know in the house. By the time we show up, especially certainly more so for Cali, um, situations diffuse a little bit. Got it. And now we go in there. We're not we're not mom and dad. We're not telling people you know sit here, you know don't say that. Got it. Go Got it. Um, it's more like hey like what's going on, man? Like, let's, let's have a serious conversation and figure out what's going on and what led to the events tonight. Got it. If, you, if it's something you need help with, like if you're not getting arrested, we'll throw you in the back of a car and we'll drive you to North Adams for treatment if they have a bed. So as somebody that works directly with families, it's getting that understanding. And that's part of what I wanted to do today. See the police department as an ally in all of this and not a foe because mm-hmm. the resources are there. We have Callie, we've got Mike, and it's not something you guys do part-time. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I hear stories all the time of Mike or one of the other officers uh, swinging by somebody's house to check in on somebody that may have had involvement with the police. Maybe they've recently gone to treatment and come back and relapsed. Maybe there was an overdose and they swing by in their own time to say, Hey, how's it going? Let us know if you need a hand. And it's really something that um, may be routine to you guys, mm-hmm. but this is really important work. And those touches stick with people. They're at their mm-hmm. lowest of low, their mm-hmm. lowest moment. And you just don't forget the person that sticks an olive branch out to you and says, hey, let me know if you need some help. Kelly, if you, if you were to talk to people about their high school age kids, because I know you deal with a lot of parents uh, that are struggling with one of their children, maybe that have substance use disorder, mental health issue or court involvement, police involvement. What do you see out there that disturbs you about parents, their perception about what's going on? I think, and I, and I know Mike can back me up on this as I think just the lack of awareness even in mental health situations, which I know can be, there's a lot of good resources out there um, for like education to just educate parents on um, like what they're seeing and just even things that maybe we think are so cut and dry, black and white. This is, oh, this is so obvious. This is, you know, anxiety, or this is so obvious. They're maybe using marijuana or some other substances and parents just have no idea. They don't know what to look for. Um, and I, I think, yeah, just the lack of education, which I, I know is something that a, a lot of different agencies in Franklin are working on mm-hmm. to provide support to parents. But I think just it, it can be frustrating um, because it just maybe it's so obvious to us. And I just have to take a step back and just think, you know, this is their kid and we're seeing it from an outsider's perspective, whereas this is their child. They Maybe mm-hmm. they don't want to see it. And that's- yeah, you're right. There's a lot of education out there. And I think that's a that's a really interesting answer. Um, we need to keep providing it and, and getting it out there for people to consume. Mike, you're dealing with young men and women uh, at the tail end of this a lot of times, not yeah. all the time, but a lot of times. What is the message you'd have for parents? And I'm thinking about attitudes around marijuana, attitudes around partying, alcohol. Uh, Callie just mentioned that there seems to be a lack of education, a uh, lack of 100%. education. Is that, yeah. you'd echo that? Absolutely. So I had the benefits of going to um, the drug recognition school. Uh, It's an intense three week school. You do two weeks in a classroom and then we flew to Phoenix uh, and did a week out there uh, analyzing people under the influence of a number of different drugs. Uh, It's 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 probably 
the best program for police that they can use throughout their whole lives um, because it allows you to see and recognize things that the common person just wouldn't know. I certainly didn't know about it, even being on the job for a little bit. So when you go in and talk to a parent and you're like, Hey, you know, are your kids coming home with red glassy eyes? Are they bloodshot? You know, are they kind of lethargic? Well, yeah, but they have allergies. Yeah. I mean, dude, come on. It's December, you know, Uh, (laughs) it's December. Yeah. I think the education for um, middle school parents up through high school is crucial to, uh, to battling this parents starting at like a late middle school time up through high school need to get education on signs and symptoms of drug use. And I know it hit in plain sight's a great, great project, but they need to start seeing a lot of how, you know, drugs have effect on people just so they can recognize it in their own kids, as opposed to, you know, you know, I got the sign that says I stayed up late last night or, you know, I'm off the wall because I've been drinking Mountain Dew at class. Well, are you doing Mountain Dew or do you take, you know, Adderall's from your friend? So I think with people understanding the signs and symptoms and how they present themselves, I think will empower parents to call their kids to the carpet. It'll give them that confidence. And then when they're being lied to, to say no. Yeah, I I hear a lot uh, when we get calls from parents, I hear a lot of the kind of conversation weaves around and basically what a parent's trying to get me to do is endorse their child's marijuana use. In other words, they'll say to me, look, you know, they, I think it might be a problem, but they keep telling me it's only weed and at least it's nothing harder. And, you know, they almost want me to say, and it's okay. Right. What would you say to a parent now with a high school, middle-aged school kid that, that may be dabbling with weed? Are you giving them a beer at dinner or you making them drink juice? You know, it's just, just because it's legalized on a, on a, on a state level, possibly at a federal level coming down the line um, doesn't mean that a, a, a kid should be doing it. The there's more than enough research on there that shows that the, the developing brain, when they're introduced to marijuana, even though it's just marijuana, uh, it plays a significant role in, in addiction down the line for any other drug. One of the things that, that as a middle school principal, when most kids are experimenting, it's not on a Friday and Saturday night, it's after school and 100%. they're on they're unsupervised. And that was one of the reasons when we were kind of having the conversations about extending school a little bit later in the day from having more activities, because they said that that unsupervised time, when I talked to Jim and all those interviews, you and I did so many of these kids started then, you know, so I don't know what your thoughts were on that, Mike, you know, about, you know, that, that little two hour window after school, three hour window when a parent, you know, pre COVID was, was working and not coming home till later on. Um, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of, a lot of times, you know, teachers with the right training, and this is something I've, I've harped on ever since I got back from the DRE school. Um, I think teachers have, can have a more influential role in identifying that type of behavior, whether it's, you know, they stayed around the school or maybe their friend picked them up, they drove around for an hour and then they came back or they're in the area. A teacher's, I mean, you know, you, you're with these kids yeah. almost more than parents. Right, exactly. So if, if something's off with them, you're like, well, you know, Johnny's not acting like he was earlier. You know, he's a little more wound up or vice versa. Um, what's going on? And then they can kind of say, you know what, I'm going to keep my eye on him for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. yeah, as far as, and I know you probably get an uphill battle with the, you know, extending school thing, but it's that whether it's, you know, programs after school that more kids should be 
can get into. Well, that's what we talked to the Y about is to say, can you come, uh, maybe one of the services of the Y could be, and we've been talking about this, is to come to the schools and have activities that extend to like six o'clock, you know, that they're doing all kinds of things. They go into the schools and have, well, the kids are there, um, you know, because we've got to keep them, we've got to keep them occupied after school. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't know if, you know, you look at now, you know, video gaming is huge. You know, do you set up a game room after school where kids can go in there and, you know. That's such a good idea. That's such a good idea. Good idea. And you see the trajectory of these kids. So you'll, you'll have involvement with a kid in high school age or maybe pre-high school even. And then you start to see the warning signs. You, you, you start hearing their name and all that. And it just doesn't end well. I, I, I talked to my son about sustainable behavior, you know, hopefully life building behavior, but also what's sustainable. Yeah. Smoking weed every day is not a sustainable activity. Mm-hmm. No lawyer, doctor, Mike Kalecki, Ann Bergen ever said, I'm glad I smoked weed every day because that enabled me to get my PhD or become a detective with the Franklin police. It just doesn't happen. So um, there's a huge disconnect, I think, with parents on this issue of early partying, if you will. They they think it's a rite of passage. They almost want to take their experience uh, in college and bring it down to the high school level and rationalize it. That's my opinion. But they don't see what's obvious and sitting right in front of them that a it's not sustainable b a child's uh, behavior starts come walking down the stairs in terms of their ability to study their ability to communicate their ability to maintain friendships police involvement and as a parent i understand i went through this i went through a period of time where i wanted to ignore it because the last thing i wanted to do was recognize the elephant in the room which is that my son had a major problem and then I was going to have to come to grips with that. It's a tough yeah. thing to do. That's where people like Mike and Callie can really come into such. They're so important because they help people see the forest through the trees, you know, and hopefully it happens before you have the lights in front of your house. And it's a com- side conversation that Mike or Callie can have saying, Hey, you know, we've heard the name. We've seen the activity heads up. Mike, what is the role that the safe coalition can play from your lens in the community as it relates to your job. What, what's great with the safe coalition. Uh, and if Callie was, I'm, you know, it's a shame Callie's not here to, to echo this, but um, it allows us to give people an Avenue. You know, we say, Hey, you, you, either you or your loved one or your kid is going down a bad path. We see it, you know, you've just seen it. Um, so, here is here is your help, you know, and we explain the, the safe coalition to them. Now, when people read it, it's not the Franklin police, the police this, the police that, the district attorney this or Rentham court this. It's it's a different entity not involved with, you know, law enforcement or the courts. And I think a lot of people initially when they take it, they kind of brush it. But then they they understand, hey, this this is a separate this is third party, you know, we're just an advocate for them. When, when, you know, we're not them. When you're not going to go there and, you know, get, see police officers that were go through a metal detector. Like you're, you know, you need help. These people want to get you help. 
we'll start going that way. Yeah, and in fact, we are bound by HIPAA privacy laws. So when people do come into the Safe Coalition, they can be assured that their conversations with us are held in the strictest of confidence. And that includes with the police departments or any other uh, policing agency. And um, it's an important partnership for us. You've called on us a lot for grief counseling. Uh, families have called us after interactions with you. I had the experience, Anne, of uh, having an officer. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, my household was involved with police contact due to my son's use and uh, an officer came up and handed me this book which I was so <laughs> proud to get and and I sat and listened to him and he was so great about it he actually had driven down the road did a u-turn and came back and walked up my walkway to hand it to me okay, this and, is good and suggested I give us a call and I was so appreciative of that any closing thoughts in no, I just, I, again, just to say thank you for all that you do. And I, I think this was so important, Jim, to have this program, because I think the community needs to know what, what the police are doing and that they are on the front lines. Um, I think it speaks to the need for continuing building up the services in the community and supporting them and what they're doing. But again, just to say thank you and how grateful we are, really. And I want to echo that and thank Mike for his continued service. The way you do your job has a huge impact. And when you were coming on the board of directors and people heard your name from the clerk magistrate of the courts all the way through probation, all said exactly the same thing. Great guy. We need him on our board. And it's because of the way you do your job and uh, the passion and compassion you have mm -hmm. for the people that you work with. And I want to thank you. Oh, Thanks, thank Mike. you very much. Yeah, no, it's an honor. And without, without safe, the police department we would probably try to still do this approach, but I don't think we'd get off the ground as much as we have because we, we wouldn't have any resources or any guidance to give. And we just, you, you guys and your work that you've put into it, the countless hours and days and weeks, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's huge for us. It's huge for Cali. Um, even the EMTs, it's, uh, it's just, you know, without you, you guys are just as responsible, if not more than, than we are for the progress that's being made. So. Thank you, Mike. So if you or a loved one needs support, please call the Safe Coalition resource line at 508-488-8105. You can find us on the internet at safecoalitionm, as in Mary, A as in Apple, dot org. And we're certainly available on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Safe Radio. We'll see you next week.